Hello, this is the Online Resilience Podcast with me, Louisa Street, and Professor Andy Fippin. We're discussing all aspects of young people's online lives and giving practical advice on how to support the young people you work with. Music is by Rue Pestel. Welcome to another episode of the Online Resilience Podcast. Um, Today we are looking at the principles of harm reduction and this comes from um, an American website which has outlined what the principles of harm reduction are in terms of drug use. We're going to look at each one and apply it to digital resilience. Um, If you want to see the uh, original um, and and look into it a bit more, you can find it at harmreduction.org. Going through all of these now, like a little bit of history about this, you sent me this website a little while ago and I just read it and went, blimey, we've just got to apply all of this to online safety yeah. um, because it is so closely aligned. And I think just going through them, um, it's, I mean, we, we've talked quite a lot about harm reduction approaches and, and the importance of them. But I think what this does is really bring it close to home that online safety doesn't exist in a vacuum or, or and it's not something that people haven't tried to tackle before with other different social issues but no one ever learns from history um you know we we are about to possibly see the collapse of the online safety bill because with the change of prime minister that the, the the word on the street is that um, neither candidate is very keen on it um yet we know in about 5 years time there'll be another piece of legislation along which will try to do exactly the same thing so we need to change the way we do things and I think adopting these harm reduction principles and, and reflecting upon how applicable they are to these sorts of things. You know, uh, again, as a result of your influence mainly, I spend a lot of time reading stuff about drug policy now, particularly people like David Nutt, who talks a great deal about evidence-based policy. And you can see that stuff moving forward well in the drugs world, not brilliantly, but well. And then you, you look at where we're at with um, the online world and you've got this utterly repetitive, tedious, and, and, you know, before we started recording, talking about this story that appeared in the mirror today about how children with anxiety and physical tics might be caused by social media. <laughs> and that's the story. And you sort of sit there and go, oh, according to who? Oh, someone said. All oh, right, that must be true then. <laughs> there's, there's no explanation for it. There's no exploration of the data that was used to do that. Someone, oh, look, some young people are, uh, you know, getting out quite anxious. That's probably down social media. Oh yeah, that's down social media. So, so yeah, that's that's a little bit of a, a meander as I'm known for. <laughs> uh, the first principle is that we accept, for better or worse, that licit and illicit drug use is part of our world and chooses to work to minimise its harmful effects rather than simply ignore or conde- condemn them. Um, so we can kind of simply take the uh, reference to drug use out of that and um, think about online behaviours that people might might engage in. And I think the licit and illicit element there is really relevant when we're thinking about young people, because um, given that there are um, different ages that young people might be allowed to do certain things like taking and sending um, explicit images of themselves or engaging in online gambling, we can kind of see that there might be some behaviours that are illegal and some that are legal that could cause harm, Um, but that we need to accept that that is part of the world we live in now. And what we want to do is try to minimise the harmful effects rather than just saying, isn't this awful? Andy, do you want to add anything to that first one? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, you know, one of the big challenges I've had over the years is when you meet with policymakers and legislators and even professionals, they go, how can we stop this stuff from happening? How can we stop young people sending indecent images? How can we stop young people accessing pornography? And, you know, when you come up with a progressive response, which is, well, 
there's ways of trying to restrict access, but you'll never be successful. So a far better approach would be young people are accessing pornography, therefore we need to ed- improve the educational outcomes and their understanding around pornography. You're met with shock and, oh, you want children to see pornography. And I think this this statement here is, you know, it's it's absolutely right. We need to accept the fact this stuff happens and we need to build from there rather than going, right, from our starting point, we're going to stop all this stuff from happening because this is behavior. This is social interaction. We need to stamp out online harms. Okay, well, then we need to stop young people watching the news, you know, yeah. because they might see something upsetting there, if, you know, or, or we need to stop them interacting with their friends. It's, it's what I always go back to. The easiest way to stamp out playground bullying is to place each child in a one meter square in the playground and tell them <laughs> not to speak to anybody for the entire time they're out there. It's a brilliant solution. It'll work. But of course, no one in their right mind is going to come across that. And I think this, this one really does start by saying that accept it happens. And while we would rather young people weren't spending five hours a day watching pornography, maybe we should be starting from a position of explaining to them why that would be a bad thing rather than saying just don't do it all right yeah. <laughs> because that's never going to work or or just ignoring when we see things that we think could be harmful and i think yeah. prior to um developing the digital resilience tool something that i'd seen in professionals colleagues and and you know people working from other organizations is that the response was either to ignore or to condemn behavior things like gaming like either um professionals would be like it's got nothing to do with me i'm not going to talk to them about it Mm -hmm. i don't understand it so i can't have a conversation where i appear knowledgeable um or i'm going to tell them how bad it is and how it's going to affect their mental health and their physical health and their ability to manage their emotions and you know all that kind of stuff there's definitely also a i mean we 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 use the term adultist perspective a great deal but i'll speak to peers now so i'm nearly 50 now and you get people oh you know drugs are terrible drugs are really bad and they go you're a massive pillar in your 20s <laughs> and they go, well well yes it was all right for me but but not for young people now and, and not for people who aren't maybe as affluent as i am and things and there's this very much we need to look down on this stuff rather than going it is part of society and a, a starting point is to recognize the fact that you probably aren't going to stamp it out now well, there are some areas where there's been a great deal of success, such as child abuse imagery and similar. It's not stamping it out, but there are mechanisms in place that will greatly reduce the chances of someone coming across that. But that's yeah. engaged a massive amount of stakeholders, and there's no ambiguity there. Even the strongest internet libertarian is not going to argue that it is our right to access child abuse imagery. No. <laughs> um, but that's just for one facet of it. If you're talking about something that is entirely subjective, so one of my favourite places to visit in terms of statistics on porn use is Pornhub because you just look at that and the sheer volume of it. You know, if, we, if we're talking about something that is a specific harm, and you know, I've been to many places where they tell me pornography is bad. If it is bad, then there's, you know, there must be two or three people consuming an, an infinitely massive amount of porn because there's a huge amount being consumed, and generally speaking, it doesn't have a massively negative impact on society as a whole. So, so yeah, I, th- I just think that um that trying to stamp these things out when there is subjectivity to it or it's harmful for somebody but not harmful for somebody else or, or the the licit and illicit aspects of it are arbitrarily defined you know I always say if a 17 year old sends a nude they're breaking the law if an 18 year old sends a nude they're protective in law you know it's just nonsense yeah so shall we move on to the next one then yes let's which is establishes quality of individual and community life and well-being, not necessarily cessation of all drug use, as the criteria for successful interventions and policies. Again, just so easily applicable to the online world, um, rather than saying, you know, it, it's the classic harm reduction thing, rather than saying we need to stop young people sending nudes. You go, well, 
if young people are going to send nudes, maybe they ought to understand some of the risks associated with that. And let's take a step back rather than just saying, oh, you could get arrested because that's not likely to happen. And it's a really negative message. But instead of going, you know, what if it goes further? Uh, have you thought about how you mitigate that risk and, and those sorts of things? So, so not starting from a point of going, right, this has a negative effect on some young people. Therefore, we've got to make sure that no young people ever do it. Again, it just strikes me as a pipe dream. Um, but instead, if you, um, it's a, it's a bit like the you know the discussion around um, sending nudes in the law. Oh, well, you need to tell them it's legal. It's like yeah, but the CPS say that they're unlikely to be arrested, and your local constabulary says they're unlikely to be arrested. So if you are going to talk about the law, talk about it properly. Um, yeah. But also, you know, because you know, I'm sure as you have, um, you end up having conversations where young people have developed their own harm reduction strategies. So it's like, well, I make sure my face isn't in it. Um, you know, it's, it's you know the classic ones like that, or oh, I make sure there's nothing recognisable in the background, or, or any of those things. So they are developing their own harm reduction strategies, and they're not checking with anybody about the efficacy of those, or whether they might think of other things, because they know if they go into a a school situation, they're going to be told, "Don't do it; it's illegal." Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, uh, there's a woman um who I greatly admire called Fiona Spargo Mabs, who is. Uh, one of the founders of the DSM Foundation who do a lot of harm reduction education around drugs and she's always really clear and, and I think this is a really nice thing about harm reduction is that you can be really clear and she always says the only way to stay totally safe from drugs is not to do drugs however here's some information about how you can stay safer if you decide yeah. to use and I think that's totally relevant to this situation like you can say to a young person the only way to make sure that an image of yourself doesn't get passed on is not to take it in the first place but if you're going to then talking to them as you say about those what ca what can you do to try and prevent it being sent on what can you do to protect yourself um, and and having those conversations if you feel like you need to kind of give that um, proviso that actually the only way to stay safe is not to do it then that's a big part of harm reduction there's absolutely mm -hmm. no no um problem with saying that it's just about being really clear that that's not where the conversation ends and i think bear in mind as well that this is entirely applicable to adults as it is to young people as well you know there will be a press story related around image-based abuse and you'll see the social media commentary about well should they take a picture should they and you know it's like have we really not moved on from here and please can we stop with the with the messages of well it's once it's online it's always online so you know you can't do anything about it now well yes you can um, you know the, the reason Pornhub pulled massive amounts of their content is because they couldn't verify that the people in the videos and things had consented to it so mm. You know there are challenges in terms of that as well so can we stop with those sorts of messages but you know it's yeah absolutely uh if you definitely want to make sure that none of your news ever get shared don't take any however if you are going to do that just as millions of other people do um you know you don't so don't suddenly wake up on your 18th birthday and go, now i am mature and sensible <laughs> enough to be able to do this in a risk-free way you know it's, it's just a nonsense um yeah when you become 18 you're protected in law um so absolutely. so yeah no, absolutely it's it's um moving away from the the messages that are absolutely worthless you know saying to someone who's new is out there you can't do anything about that which is first of all wrong secondly what does that achieve by telling mm. that person that apart from shame them further and i think something to consider if you're um talking to a group of young people about sending nudes is that you might say oh it's illegal and you know it, you'll lose control of it and so on and so forth to a group of young people but before you say it consider whether that may have already happened without your knowledge to people mm -hmm. in that class because that could be very traumatizing and if we're taking that sort of trauma-informed approach then 
what we're instantly doing by saying all of that in the classroom or in the youth club or you know whatever setting it might be is it was your fault that it happened to you Mm -hmm. and no one no one will be there to help you and nothing can be done and um as you said that's very much not the case no i know it is it's a a wonderful message to give a vulnerable young person or oh well you know as i was told once we give them the hairdryer treatment first if they come and tell us like this was a deputy dsl if they come and tell us that there's sort of thing that we give them the hairdryer treatment then see what we can do sort out well what's the point the first part Mm. yeah (laughs) apart from to make you feel (laughs) better maybe it's 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 a strange one but but there you go Okay, so the next principle is that um, it ensures that people who use drugs and those with a history of drug use routinely have a real voice in the creation of programmes and policies designed to serve them. Actually, I'm going to go straight to Andy because we were discussing this one before we started recording and um, I think you had an interesting reflection on um, programmes and policies aimed at young people. Oh, I'm not sure it's an interesting reflection. It's just <laughs> something that has ground my gears for a long time. Is If you look at all the recent consultations and um, evidence sessions and people they've been speaking to and claiming they had a male stakeholder perspective on the online safety bill, the one group of people they didn't speak to whatsoever was young people. Um, you, you had a few people saying, oh, well, I've spoken to young people and this is what they say. Um, one of whom said that, well, the number one concern um, by young people is pornography. And you say, what? <laughs> that's, that's never happened. You know, how long have we been working on Head Start? Five years, how many thousands of young people we've spoken to? I don't think anyone's ever won. Yeah, I think pornography is the thing that concerns me the most. Um, so so if one was being cynical, one might suggest that, that maybe they're um, misrepresenting the youth voice there. And it's so important. Because as both you and I have experienced a great deal, if you want to learn about this stuff, sit down and speak to some young people and listen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the whole drive of this entire policy has been um, uh, we want to keep young people safe from harm. There was a bizarre tweet by Nadine Doris. That doesn't really narrow it down, but there was a bizarre <laughs> tweet by Nadine Doris a few days ago saying Labour tried to block the debate around the online safety bill before the end of parliament with a no confidence vote which was actually incorrect because it was the government that brought the no confidence vote um and uh every day they delay they're placing four and a half thousand young people at risk of online harm according to the nspcc and just go, where the hell do you get to that figure it's interesting <laughs> yeah because you'd think from that perspective that it would be all young people so hmm. it's great that it's only four and a half thousand <laughs> That's per day, though. It's oh, really? four, four and a half thousand different ones every day. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, it's like, where did that come from? Mm. And, and basically what you're saying is we're doing this to help young people. Therefore, if you don't support us, you want young people to get hurt online. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know for a fact that no young people have actually had any voice in this debate. So once again, it's just a bunch of people deciding what young people need to do and how they can best be protected. It seems they can best be protected by platforms being threatened with large fines if they allow harms to happen on their platforms. And I think something that, I mean, I feel very frustrated about um, a lot of the narrative around, oh, we should, you know, we should bring in these fines for companies like Facebook if um, they're not doing everything they could be doing to protect young people online we could do a lot better in terms of regulating these 
big social media companies if we made them pay tax. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. the government are not really interested in bringing them into line. They're interested in doing things which will look like they're bringing mm -hmm. them into line and that will allow them to place the blame at the feet of somebody else rather than themselves. No, it's, it's kind of like, you know, there are lots of reasons to get annoyed at social media companies. The flagrant disregard for people's privacy, the fact that they try and drive most of the data collection into jurisdictions where they can basically sell people's data and things. Um, you know, just the, as you say, the, the horrendous non-paying of tax by claiming that they don't actually sell any services or mm -hmm. sell any products <laughs> in specific countries. Um, yeah, you know, but but equally there was um, a government investigation into that in three or four years ago, and I think it was one of the VPs from Google when we pay as much tax as we're legally obliged to do. <laughs> um, which I thought was, yeah, he's spot on there. There are lots of reasons to to find problems with them, but when you sort of like, okay, well, what can platforms do to prevent this? Well, they can provide tools to report things and they can provide tools to mute people and they can provide the means to try and detect some of these things. Well, they do that. So what? Mm. And then you go, oh, but they've got to do it better. You go, well, if as humans, we can't decide whether someone's being sarcastic or abusive on a post, how can we expect the elders to do it? And go, oh, because of AI, oh, we're going in circles here. And the, the voice in the middle that's not being represented is young people who are, are saying things like, we'd just like some better education, please. Mm. And I think that's really important. I, I did a really interesting focus group with some primary age young people who were saying that one of the big things that that causes problems online is misunderstandings. So mm -hmm. they'll be in a group chat and someone will say something and they'll think they're being mean about me. And actually, you know, they, they've misread what the person was saying or they've misunderstood the context or you know and and there was a real awareness that that happened that you know they even you know these were probably four or five pupils and they were aware that you know they'd they had misunderstood what someone was trying to say and they got upset about it and then it had taken a while for everything to be resolved but the way that we kind of we can help young people the way we can reduce the harm from those issues is by having those conversations regularly um, I know when I was working um, with young people talking to them about healthy relationships I would talk to them all the time about things like body image and um, communication and and I was always aware that like as much as I was you know I was telling them I was doing it to educate them about you know the risks of how looking at images of um, celebrities on Instagram can affect your body image Actually, for me, it was really useful to be reminded of that all the time because it made me more resilient to those things as well. Mm -hmm. And I think in the same way, you know, th these discussions shouldn't be one off discussions where um, we talk online harms with this young person. So I don't need to. Yeah, well, you were told. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. It's, yeah. it's a bit like, you know, when you have the, the collapse timetable days and the. Um, Here's a specialist from outside who's going to come in once and tell you all about something, and then they're going to go again, and you won't be able to ask them another question again. And don't ask us anything because we don't know about it. You yeah. know, it doesn't seem to be very, very young person centric with those approaches. And you can kind of appreciate the fact that if, if you are approaching this from a perspective of technical knowledge, the teachers in in, in schools might not be comfortable talking about that. But if you take a step back and go, this isn't about technical knowledge or knowing the platforms. It's about listening and being able to provide advice as an adult to that young person's concerns. And maybe it's to reassure them, maybe it's a discussion in class, maybe it's a discussion in the room, but it's about placing the young person as the important thing in here rather than just trying to dismiss it as quickly as possible because this is eating into break time now. Yeah, 
yeah um, so. and and it might be that you know if if you start having a discussion in shooter time and there isn't time to do it justice it might be that you say do you know what actually i've heard that this is something that you want to talk about we're going to make time to discuss yeah. it properly um you know we're not expecting teachers to have superhuman powers to get through all of this stuff in a 20 minute tutorial mm -hmm. so yeah you might um, I mean, what it boils down to is what we talk about a great deal, which is confidence to disclose and get support. And, you know, the I'm sure I know for a fact, you know, when we've done sessions together and things, generally speaking, someone will hang around at the end and want to ask for something that um, they didn't want to say in front of other people. That's probably happened at about 90 percent of the sessions I've ever done in schools. And I've done quite a lot of sessions in schools. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, you expect that to happen. And, you know, there are some, so, you know, certainly like, who'd like to say if they've been upset by anything that's happened yeah. online? <laughs> um, again, might not be the best environment to do it, but that's where you can lay the foundations for providing that environment, where if you're not delivering messages like, well, you can't say anything uh, nasty online, because if you say something, as, as I was told by a friend of mine who's a teacher, we've got a class, we've got a lesson where we tell them if they say something online that's offensive, it's illegal. And then, <laughs> I can't be unpicked his argument and said, right, can you define um, what offensive is? Can you tell me which piece of legislation that's under? And he's like, oh, God, here you go again. <laughs> like, no, but the simple message doesn't help anybody unless you are using it as a threat rather than support. And it turned out in that case they were because yeah. um, someone had called the head of pedo on TikTok. And I think, and <laughs> I think the... Uh... The really important thing about harm reduction is that it's not about using scare tactics. So mm -hmm. if you are saying, if you do this, you're breaking the law, it's legal, you'll get into trouble, or these images will be shared on without your um, permission, or um, playing playing computer games for this many hours is going to damage your eyesight, or whatever it might be, those are all packaged up as scare tactics. Yeah. And we know categorically that does not work. Absolutely. You're right. Right, should we move on to the next one? Yes. So, so harm reduction recognises that the realities of poverty, class, racism, social isolation, past trauma, sex-based discrimination, other social inequalities affect both a person's vulnerabilities to and capacity for effectively dealing with drug-related harm. Absolutely. You, again, yeah. this, is, this is so <laughs> transferable. The number of times I've been asked, what, do, what is it that young people do online? And you go, well, it depends, because that's an individual you're talking about there. Um, and, there could be all manner of different things that affect, first of all, their behavior online, and secondly, how they respond to that behavior. Just as you see different adults behaving in different ways, there probably hasn't, isn't a school in the country where the parents haven't come in to claim that their child's being cyberbullied, and they're at it on Facebook, slagging <laughs> off both the school and the teacher, and probably the child as well. So, so yeah, it's, this, this one-size-fits-all approach really isn't helpful. And something that we talk about in drug services when we're talking about recovery is something called recovery capital. And that is things like, do you have a good support network around you? Um, because if you've got a good support network, it's going to be a really useful resource to help you recover from substance use um, or, you know, substance use problems. Um, similarly, um, money is is part of recovery capital and so that's why you might see that a child who comes from a wealthy background could experience exactly the same problem as a child who comes from a less wealthy background but the child from the wealthy background will not appear to experience the same level of harm um, mm -hmm. and may seem to be more resilient to that harm um, and that you know that is about that vulnerability that having that different social um, position uh, social 
uh, standing, I guess, is going to affect their risk of harm. Mm -hmm. I think this is why I find you see a great deal of survey data being reported, particularly in the press. X number of children do this. X. Oh, I think my favourite one is uh, uh, one from during lockdown where children who are addicted to social media are twice as likely to, to be groomed as those who aren't. Now, first of all, that's a really bad thing to stop with. But secondly, they've asked a group of young people. That doesn't necessarily mean that that group of young people is representative of all of the young people anywhere in the world. Now, I can see that both media reporting and politicians like to have these statistics so that they can just quote out, but they're completely facile at the end of the day, particularly in that case, because they'd actually, the, the way they determined whether someone was addicted to social media was to say, are you addicted to social media? <laughs> <laughs> and um, as I'm sure I said before, I've not, not met many 13, 14 year olds who are clinically qualified to make the addiction diagnosis, but but there you go. So, um, so yeah, the, these things are at best uh, useful indicators for discussion, at worst, completely irresponsible and completely unrepresentative of, of young people in general. But I think in every single case, we need to be mindful if it's not just the the actual thing that's occurred online, it's, you know, all the other things that are going on in their lives and, and things as well. Definitely. Okay, let's move on to the next one. So uh, this is that harm reduction understands drug use as a complex multifaceted phenomenon that encompasses a continuum of behaviours from severe to total, uh, sorry, severe use to total abstinence and acknowledges that some ways of using drugs are clearly safer than others. If we just uh, substitute drug use for digital yeah. behaviours, um, I think this is really important because obviously, and, and something that we talk about a lot in the digital resilience tool and in the training is um, that, you know, a lot of behaviours that young people engage in online will be very safe and, and very normal for their age and others will be much more harmful. And even within certain behaviours, there are things. So if you've looked at the digital resilience tool, which hopefully if you're listening to this podcast, you have seen it, you'll know that we've got a category of behaviour that is potentially harmful. And everything in that category could be, you know, on discussion with a young person, you might think, oh, yeah, actually, they're doing a lot to manage the risk of this. And um, equally, you might think, actually, there's no support around this young person. There's nothing uh, that's reducing the risk here. So it's going to make it more harmful, more high risk. I think one of the things that amuses me sometimes when you sort of show people the, the tool is they'll go, well, there's a lot of behaviours in that, aren't they? Like, well, yes, there are. That's because there's a lot of behaviours online. <laughs> You know, like going, oh, blimey, that's that's an awful lot of leisure activities those young people are doing there. Can't we just give them three or four? <laughs> it would be far easier if we could do that. You know, there there is an awful lot of stuff that, that goes on online. A lot of it good, a lot of it positive. If we're only being fed the media narrative of um, going online is bad and it's full of groomers and it's full of paedophiles and you will be approached within seconds of being there. You know, that's, yeah. And, and I think the, the other important point that makes there is it's complex and multifaceted in terms of, where the harm arises from it's probably not just the particular act of online behavior they're doing but their peer support group whether they're doing it people know whether they're doing it people that don't know whether they've done this sort of thing before you know there's all of these things which i could equally be talking about drug use mm. um it's you know the harm arises from something going awry rather than the specific behavior itself now there are some things that are clearly extremely risky um uh just in, this, in the online world as there is, is in terms of drug use, but, but to say that is always harmful, therefore we should just stop it, is just the, the strangest way of approaching these things, really. <laughs> <laughs> you know, oh, well, we just need to, you know, 
oh yeah you can you just tell them not to ever go online and then they're missing out (laughs) on massive amounts of really positive experiences you know that statistic we all use from the the massive survey that Stephens Good for Learning do 15,000 young people when they're asked if anything upsetting happened online 70 percent of them say no yeah (laughs) so that means that I mean it's 15,000 young people from the ages of about seven up to 18 and 70% 70% of them are saying they've never encountered anything negative online. It's and maybe we should weird. remember those sorts of things <laughs> yeah. rather than going, oh, but you know, what about the children? Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, no, I think, I think it's a really important thing to remind ourselves of. Um, I think the next one is incredibly important as well. So um, harm reduction calls for the non-judgmental, non-coercive provision of services and resources to people who use drugs in the communities in which they live in order to assist them in reducing attendant harm. I think the non-judgmental, non-coercive provision is so important and still missing so much when it comes to digital resilience and mm-hmm. online safeguarding and, and similar. You know, the, the the thing I've talked about a great deal, I started off this work in like 2004, 2005, and young people would be saying, when you ask what can a, a professional or an adult do to help you best, they'd say, don't judge. And it's mm-hmm. still happening now in the session we did a while ago at that secondary school in West Cornwall, they still come out with the same things, that, you know. Um, so clearly that hasn't worked, which is kind of why we're adopting this harm reduction approach, because we know that the current approaches aren't working. Yeah. So, so let's do something different instead. But the non-judgmental aspect of it is, is so important. Just because you wouldn't have done that, or just because you don't understand the thing they're disclosing, doesn't mean it's wrong and doesn't mean it's bad. You know? Definitely. And I think the non-coercive thing there is really interesting. And an an example of this within um, drug services would be that you might run a needle exchange and you would run the needle exchange without any kind of expectation that people will engage in other services. And similarly with digital behaviours, it might be that a young person tells you that they're doing something that you might consider to be harmful. They don't want to stop doing it. They're not going to stop doing it. And so rather than trying to force them to stop doing it, we say, okay, well, what can we do to help you reduce the harm? And that might be, so for example, I worked with a young person who was posting a lot of images of themselves on Tumblr and getting a lot, this was obviously a few years ago now, (laughs) Tumblr, Tumblr, wow. (laughs) But they were getting a lot of positive comments from people. But the images they were posting, whilst not particularly sexual in nature, were perhaps more revealing than... um, than would have been ideal um they didn't want to stop posting images of themselves because it was the only place that they were actually having they were homeschooled so they weren't having that like reinforcement positive reinforcement or otherwise from anyone um and so it was about saying okay well i'm not i'm not going to tell you not to post pictures but let's talk about how we could reduce the risk Mm -hmm. when you are posting those pictures Um, and things that you know might be healthier ways of looking at it you know i'm if i'm engaging with a young person i can still be suggesting those things in the same way as if i was working in a needle exchange i would still yeah. be saying to people there's support available mm-hmm. but it's not forced it's not you know you'll only get this support on the condition that you also yeah. access this support mm-hmm. no i think you know you can have a, a serious conversation about potential harms and suggest mitigation approaches without it becoming confrontational and also to explain why there might be a harm associated with it. Yeah. You know, I can remember a conversation with a young man um, who was autistic a while ago who was talking about his friend who was the same age as him. And I thought, how do you know he's 14? And he said, well, because he told me he's 14. I went, well, what if they were making that up? And he went, well, why would they make that up? Um, you know, <laughs> at that point, it might be 
alarm bells and let's have a look at the phone, but it's sort of like, right, let's have a conversation about how people aren't always who they say they are online and things. And after a while, it's like, oh, okay. Um, but, you know, I'm sure that more than one conversation will be needed and those sorts of things. But, yeah. but yeah, just going, well, you shouldn't, don't talk to them, don't talk to them. They're clearly a paedophile. How, does, <laughs> you know, how, does, how is that helping? And, you know, if you have got someone posting up images because they like the comments that are responding, talk to them about their privacy settings, who can see it, who can, DMU, PMU, I've got no idea what you call it in Tumblr. Could you actually message people on Tumblr? I can't remember. Yes, I've got no idea. <laughs> but, but, you know, it's about, you know, agency and, and empowering them to take those responsibilities themselves. So you don't have to have your messaging switched on. Uh, you don't have to. You, you can block people. You don't have to put up, you know, all those sorts of things are, are part of a, a non-judgmental, non-coercive conversation rather than going, well, if you delete your account, then we can talk about it. Yeah. Um, that's not helpful to anybody. Absolutely. Um, and actually, that links really nicely with the next one, which is harm reduction affirms people who use drugs themselves as the primary agents of reducing the harms of their drug use and seeks to empower people who use drugs to share information and support each other in strategy which meets, uh, sorry, strategies which meet their actual conditions of use. Um, and that, yeah, that is exactly that. that actually the, it's almost the young... like we planned it and rehearsed it. Yeah. We never do. <laughs> just that they're, they're so perfectly organized this, <laughs> mm. yeah um, mm. yeah so uh uh you know a young person is going to be the best person to um reduce harm that they're experiencing but also that if they're engaging in risky behaviors online it might be that their friends and peers are as well and so kind of recognizing that potential ripple effect if harm mm -hmm. reduction information is shared yeah i think the flip side of that is that I do see a lot of people buying into peer education programs, which on the one hand is great because yeah, absolutely young people will listen to other young people and things, but that's not, we've got a peer education program. So we just put our feet up when that session happens and, you know, we have a bit of TikTok or whatever, you know, you still have to like provide a support structure for those sorts of things. You know, I, I remember asking one teacher once, okay, so what happens when that 17 year old gets a 13 coming to them and saying they've been sexually assaulted by a parent? Um, the face dropped it's like, it's like have you have you provided routes for escalation and those sorts mm. of things so so peer programs are incredibly valuable um you know there's all sorts of different ones with the digital leaders program and all those sorts of things um and they can be really really helpful but it should be peer-led yeah but there should be support systems in place and what the peer mentoring system shouldn't do is you get all the peer mentors into into the staff room tell them oh you need to tell them this um, yeah. <laughs> because again that's really not very helpful all you get then is people being more or young people sort of looking at them like they're the the class snitches or something so they didn't take any notice of them it should be a a proper peer-led environment but yeah you know you can gain a great deal from these sorts of approaches yeah definitely i think just moving on to the last one now which i think is incredibly important um because you know we can sometimes talk a great deal about the positive sides of, of the online world but i think this one um, harm reduction does not attempt to minimize or ignore the real and tragic harm and danger that can be associated with illicit drug use there are bad things that happen online yeah. And we should be talking about them as well. Definitely. But we should definitely be providing an environment where young people who are affected by the serious things that happen online with routes to disclose and to get support that is non-judgmental and non-coercive in nature. Um, we're not saying, oh, everyone gets too uptight about this, it's terrible. We're saying we need to prioritise support for those people that are genuinely affected by bad things that happen while providing decent education and knowledge and support for everybody. Yeah. And, you know, I think the 
my experience particularly of doing the focus groups um, with young people is that they they do actually want to talk about those higher risk activities they're not um you know coming in and saying oh you know we just want to talk about how great the internet is because they'll talk about that with their friends um so i think there is a desire from young people to talk about the risks and the you know the, the things that can be uh it can go very wrong and when i was reading through this i was thinking you know you might kind of be thinking well no one's ever died from you know sending an unfortunate message but actually if we look at kind of online bullying cases there there have been um suicides and and deaths from young people who did do something online that they they then you know couldn't couldn't didn't have the support i should say to yeah. um deal with the consequences of so yeah there is a real risk of uh real serious harm and in the amanda todd case was one that came up a great mm -hmm. deal this was a few years ago now where she um was asked to um take her clothes off on webcam with someone she didn't know and then they coerced and abused them for years and as a result of trying to disclose it she was not supported and then she did eventually take her own life um but, you know, it's a, it's a very powerful case that demonstrates that these sorts of things can happen. And Molly Russell is another more recent one um, where she was, you know, consuming a great deal of, of self-harm content mm -hmm. and similar. Although that's not to say that anyone who looks at self-harm content will ultimately go to take their own life. Like we were saying, every single case is, is different. But yeah, some bad things happen, but, but talk about them proportionately. You know, mm -hmm. there's all these sorts of reports about how there's a... Uh, uh, a massive increase in online grooming over the last three years. Okay, but that's gone from a few hundred to several more hundred. If we're talking about the number of interactions that take place online every day, that's still a very, very small thing. And yeah. um, the, the likelihood of a young person being groomed isn't that high. It's not to mean that we shouldn't talk about it. And a lot of young people will immediately dismiss anyone trying to engage them in these sorts of conversations because they've had good peer support and they'll talk about you know, we just tell the post to piss off and stuff like that. <laughs> um but but yeah these things should be should be dealt with and i think that's something that we're sort of developing in a lot of the new work we're doing around here start is is these things should be addressed from an evidence base they shouldn't just be addressed off oh i saw this thing and it was terrifying so don't do it <laughs> well okay but what's the chance of that actually happening but i think you know going through those those eight principles it just really strongly reflects to me what we can learn from other areas of if you like sort of safeguarding social behavior type education and, and not just think this is new this is different we need to stop it <laughs> my god i've never heard of a TikTok. You know? <laughs> um and you know the, there is a a lot to learn from history and you know you've talked before about how everyone's invited and you had senior people shocked to hear that sexual assault happened in schools and you're just like for god's sake we've been talking about it for at least the last 10 years mm. um but but you know we have had these debates before you know when david nutt was sacked by a labor government for saying that um <laughs> horse riding was more dangerous than taking mdma because that's what the data said yeah. <laughs> but you can't say that but that's what the data says you know and and, and now you go oh you, you you got to tell them not to send news but they do yeah but you got to tell them not to because otherwise you're telling them it's okay like well no I'm not I'd just rather yeah. support them instead so so yeah and, and I think something that um I was sort of reflecting on before we started recording is that within drug services harm reduction is very well accepted in mainstream it's not and in mainstream mm -hmm. services so when I go into schools to talk about substance use 
teachers can be shocked by the harm reduction approach. They may not be using that harm reduction approach, but that isn't to say that that approach isn't widely used within drug services. The difference with um, digital resilience is that there aren't specific digital resilience services in the same way. So it is all done at that universal level. And that's why it's really important if you're working as a teacher, as a youth worker, as a social worker, and you're listening to this podcast and you're feeling like, yes, this is the approach. We need to spread the word. We need to get mm -hmm. more people aware of that um, and, you know, tell them about this podcast. I, 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 do, I do think since we've been talking about it, it is almost like people, the lights come on and go, mm -hmm. oh, we can do that rather than yeah. <laughs> what do you need us to tell them how to manage their privacy settings on Instagram? I don't even know what Instagram is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, so, yeah, it does, it does seem to be that when you talk about it and you start to unpick it, it's something that people can engage with. But as you say, um, having those conversations and spreading the word is really important. Definitely. Okay, well, um, we'll wrap up uh, the principles of harm reduction there um, and we will be back with another podcast soon. So keep an eye out. That's it for another episode of the Online Resilience Podcast. If you liked it, please tell someone you know who might also enjoy it. You can share on Facebook, Twitter, or even just pop a link in an email. Thank you.